welcome to another episode of Roots, a Jazz Impressions podcast. My name's Ollie. My name's Dan. And together we run jazzimpressions.co.uk, a music blog designed as a game of musical ping pong where we explore musical connections one track at a time. Uh, in this podcast, we both pick a track and then we both map a route between those two tracks by an interesting uh, series of musical stepping stones uh, as a means to explore and talk about some of the music we enjoy. Um, so this is episode number nine. Dan, what track have you chosen? I've gone for Saturday Night in the Cosmos by the George Adams Don Pollen Quartet. Oh, interesting, I don't know that one. How about you? And I have chosen uh, Junk Blues by the fantastic saxophone player Joe Henderson. Fantastic track. Yes. Do you want to go um, first? Yeah, I'll go first this time. Um, so kicking things off today with uh, Joe Henderson's Junk Blues um, from his 1971 album uh, Henderson's Habiliment. Um, it was originally a Japanese-only live album, um, and then two years later it was released um, under the name In Japan on um, the American label Milestone. <laughs> Joe Henderson is a fantastic player, um, but this session is one of the, the best live albums I've ever heard in terms of just the energy levels. Um, interestingly, on the, on the Japanese release, um, Junk Blues actually opens the album, whereas on the Milestone release it closes it. To be honest, there's arguments for and against opening an album and closing an album with this. I imagine you'd be pretty burnt out when you first, you listen to an album and this is what kicks it off, but at the same time, what a way to start an album. Yeah, 14 minutes of just the most intense, fiery... Modal, yeah. fiery, spiritual bop. You know, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And I mean, the lineup on this album, it's Joe Henderson backed by basically a crap team of fantastic Japanese musicians um, who were all, within their own right, key players in the early 70s um, jazz scene in Japan. You've got Kunimitsu Inaba on bass, um, Motohiko Hino on drums, and the fantastic Hideo Ichikawa on electric piano. So the album itself, it was recorded live. It's called Junk Blues because it was recorded at the Junk Club in Tokyo, which was a, um, a, uh, a live jazz venue at the time. And what's amazing about this recording, just the, you can hear the room um, in terms of, first of all, the fans, at the beginning you can hear them clapping and going wild, and traditionally, obviously, the Japanese are very kind of reserved, but when they're passionate about something, they really let loose, and you can hear just all the kind of, all these Japanese jazz fans in there just whooping and shrieking, um, and you can hear throughout as well, just like the odd kind of clinks of glasses and stuff like that. Like a lot of great live jazz recordings, yeah. you've got that room ambience, and it feels as well that the room's quite small, yeah. It feels like it's a very kind of like low-roofed, intimate venue, and that really is captured on the recording. And the first track on the Molson release, anyway, is Route Midnight. Yes. It starts with an unaccompanied solo by Henderson, where you can hear the keys and his breath 
because it's so intimate. Yeah, it's, fanta it's fantastically recorded as well. Mm. The cover's cool as well, him sat there shirtless. Right. The saxophone next to him and the Japanese writing in lines across him. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's, that's, what, that's what's really interesting about this album. So like I said, the original version, which is very rare, is the, the, the Japanese original that came out. The thing that's super cool about the album is on the back, that is why the original Jack Pressing is called. It's got one of the coolest pictures of Joe Henderson ever. Of him smoking, smoking a cigarette and just kind of shrouded in the... I love the, uh, the pinstriped flares that he's wearing as well. I know, right? Fashion icon right there. That is, in terms of like sartorial choices, that's pretty, it's a pretty strong look. Yeah. You know, you turn up to your gig. I don't know if he was wearing that for the gig, probably not. But you just rock up basically topless parent wearing a pair of pins, pinstripe flares. On. Yeah. It's a pretty strong look, but uh, yeah, I mean, I love Joe Henderson, yeah. and every picture of him, he just looks, he just looks cool. But that is for me the quintessential Joe Henderson picture of him smoking. Mm. Um, but yeah, one of my all-time favourite live albums um, from a fantastic player, um, and the energy is on another level. So, what's your next selection? So from there, um, I've decided to stay on the the Japanese jazz route for now, um, and the connection being is that Hideo Ichikawa. Um, the keys player on Junk Blues, also features on this next album. Um, also, interestingly, the Joe Henderson composition, Isotope, also there's a rendition of that on this album. But the track I've picked is uh, Dream Eyes um, by the Kosuke Mine Quintet. Um, it's from... Kosuke Mine was a Japanese saxophonist, and um, this is from his album Mine, which was released in 1970 on the Japanese jazz label Three Blind Mice. sounds a lot like In a Silent Way by Miles Davis. Doesn't it, Justin? Right down to the way it drops out towards the end and then comes back in with the... Right, yeah. And well, this is this was the strange thing, because when I first heard it, I thought, wait, is this, this is In a Silent Way kind of thing. Um, and it's not a cover, but you can hear the influence is incredibly strong. Yeah. I mean, Kosuke Mino, he travelled to New York and he played abroad, I think, in the, and collaborated with American musicians as well and no doubt you know at that time if you were playing jazz you'd, around the kind of the late 60s 1970s you you would have heard in a silent way you know it was impossible not to and obviously that had a profound effect on the kind of this kind of fusion this kind of modal fusion that these guys were making um but i mean it's a fantastic again this fantastic track it's long um a bit like junk blues in a way it's kind of got you know, Junk Blues is a long track, but this is kind of similar thing and it moves through all these kind of phases. It's a little more intense than In a Silent Way in yeah. places where it builds. In a Silent Way stays fairly subdued yeah. through like almost all of it until, the, until right to the end, yeah. isn't it? But like this kind of seems to kind of ebb and flow more and then you yeah. get these kind of, you know, Kosuke Mino's soloing over the top, which is... It's almost 
Coltrane. I was just going to say. It's like the best of both worlds. I was going to say there's that Coltrane influence in his playing. So, you know, you get this quite kind of free, yeah. you know, improvisational stuff going on and then it all gets stripped back down again and then just back down to the cymbals mm -hmm. and you get that glistening roads from uh, Hideo Ichikawa again that you hear on uh, Junk Blues but in a much more kind of intense, mm -hmm. intense uh, setting. But I mean, yeah, fantastic album. And what's, what's important about this album specifically is that it was the first, um, the first release on the Three Blind Mice label. I see. Um, and for those who aren't necessarily that familiar with uh, Japanese jazz, if the US had Blue Note, the Japanese had Three Blind Mice. Obviously compared to Blue Note, you know, it's not like it's been going as long as Blue Note has and hasn't recorded nearly as many albums as Ron Blue Note, but for the Japanese scene, it was a, a very important um, label for being able to showcase the Japanese jazz scene and arguably did so in the most kind of, the widest kind of commercial sense. A lot of Japanese jazz was released either, you know, on very small labels or privately and things like that. But Three Blind Mice is the closest thing to having a commercial jazz label that um, Japan had. Um, and a lot of the, the music that came out on the label, mainly through the 70s and, and the 80s as well, um, was influenced obviously by the US jazz that had come a bit earlier. So obviously by the time that, you know, the 60s have finished up, interestingly in the States, jazz is waning because funk and rock are coming in. Um, but meanwhile in Japan, and I think I read somewhere that, you know, the Japanese were the, the, the biggest um, consumers of jazz in the 70s. And I think into the 80s as well, they basically carried the industry mm, yeah. in terms of consumption in it. And, you know, the jazz was huge in Japan. Obviously, the influence of GIs bringing in the music over after the war and having American soldiers still there, they simply like Okinawa and stuff. Um, that was an opportunity to get access to US jazz and a lot of these players that were very proved very inspirational to uh, Japanese musicians. Um, and I mean, the artwork as well as worth mentioning, I just showed you, it's this giant head of Nosuke Mine. Just, it's you crazy. Know, yeah, I mean, it looks like, I mean, just go check it out. But I mean, it looks like kind of Salvador Dali meets MC Escher. Yeah. Um, this weird kind of geometric giant. landscape, giant head. I mean, it kind of fits the music, really. It's a bit like the, um, it's crazy. Uh, the George Duke, Billy Cobham. One where oh, what the live the live one where they're yeah. all walking around. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, it's kind of like that, isn't it? But I mean, it's it's fantastic, fantastic album cover and amazing music to uh, to match as well. And again, a fantastic band. Um, Kosuke Mine went on to record a slew of great albums for Three Blind Mice, um, and continued playing as well, and is still alive today. In fact, BBE Records uh, recently reissued his first album entitled first funnily enough uh, never before reissued um, outside of japan um, and it's a fantastic album as well so this actually preceded um this album um so this was technically his second album but the first for three blind mice but first is a great album in itself um again a fantastic lineup um, a mixture of american and japanese musicians playing the same kind of modal post-bop with a kind of fusion edge as well. Mm. But it's a cracking album, so that's worth listening to. And speaking of debut releases, um, that leads me on to my next step in my musical uh, journey. Um, I've decided to go for another album, uh, which was the first album um, released on a label. Um, and it's by another saxophonist, this time a US saxophonist, um, by the name of Billy Harper. 
And the track I've specifically chosen is a track called Call of the Wild and Peaceful Heart um, from his album Black Saint, uh, released in 1975 and was the first release on the Black Saint record label. spiritual post-bop um, that Billy Harper was well known for. And really, kind of Billy Harper is one of those players you can put in that kind of post-Coltranian you know, group of players from people like Steve Grossman, Billy Harper, all these guys were, even Kosuke Nino, you could hear the influence on his stuff as well. I mean, like we've said before, it's hard not to be influenced by Coltrane um, after you know what, what he did in jazz. But, um, but yeah, Billy Harper is a fantastic player. I think he's I would say he's probably my favourite tenor player along with uh, Joe Henderson. Just personal preference, really. I like that, you know, you can hear in that track that there's some serious, uh, almost like free jazz scronking that goes on. But he always retains this kind of lyricism mm -hmm. that I find is one of his kind of characteristic style. He's got an incredibly kind of mellow but intense sound, if you know what I mean. Yeah. He can go from very, very mellow and soulful very intense very quickly but he's always kind of keeps it in check and I, li I like that um, they all keep up such an incredible level of energy for well, that's, 20 minutes right that's the other thing 9-8 time which is an unusual time signature <laughs> right it's interesting you know you've got Billy Harper who's obviously um, part of that kind of post Coltrane group of players that were heavily influenced by Coltrane's style and I feel in a way you know what Billy Harper is maybe to Coltrane Joe Bonner who features on keys on this album is to McCoy Tyner. And he was very influenced by McCoy Tyner's style. Yeah. So it's interesting, it feels like a kind of a, a kind of a later, obviously this came out in 75, but you know, about 10 years later than A Love Supreme, but it seems to carry that same kind of intense energy that you hear on, I mean, Billy Harper recorded an album on uh, Strata East and featured on things like that. So it's very much that fantastic sound. And we've heard, you know, like the Music Inc stuff with Charles Tolliver, that kind of progressive, um, progressive kind of post-bop sound yeah. that was popular in the 1970s on swings but it's free yeah it's it, powerful exactly it's lyrical. and there's kind of analogues as well with the, the stuff in Japan you know it's the same thing you know although jazz interest in jazz was raining a lot of these players Billy Harper being one of them um, did a lot of stuff in Japan and you know he's he did some albums that were Japanese only ones there's one called Soren Bushi um, but there's various albums that were also widely released in Japan and he had a kind of second second wind there, so to speak. Um, and again, great recordings, played with a lot of great musicians. Um, interestingly as well, notably, he uh, he toured, well, he played and toured with Gil Evans as well. Um, there's a fantastic video on YouTube of a, of a tour they did to, uh, to Japan yeah. with Gil Evans just, uh, you know, manning the big band and Billy Harper soloing up front. And it's yeah. just an amazing black and white re footage and I think it was from Billy Harper's own home recording kind of thing or uh -huh. he record he got someone to record the gig or something but yeah it's fantastic um, but a fantastic player and again you know Joe Bonner is one of my favourite 
players um, to ever touch the keys. And you were saying earlier a favourite for Madeline who we talked about last week. Yeah, I mean you can understand he's he's one of those players that kind of is not like necessarily that well well, I say well-known. He's well-known in, obviously, certain jazz circles, if you listen to stuff, but famously he played with Ferris Sanders, probably most notably. But in his own right, he's a fantastic, fantastic Keynes player. Uh, released a whole slew of fantastic solo albums as well. I think now people are starting to kind of catch on to what talented pianist he was, but... He was also born in the same town as Thelonious Monk. Rocky Mount, North Carolina. I mean, they're two very different pianists. Well, Bonner did do an album of Monk... Tunes as well. He did Monkisms. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, a fantastic track, a really good album. I think I know where this is going. Do you though? Well, Black Saints is an affiliate of Soul Note. Oh, for God's sake. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, okay, you beat me to it. So, where is it going to go? Who knows? Anything can happen. <laughs> but yeah, you, you knocked the nail right on the head. Um, Black Saint um, is related to Soul Notes, um, which was its sister label, uh, which was dedicated to uh, releasing kind of other contemporary jazz of the time. And they're kind of two sides of the same coin, really. Um, but you also see on Soul Notes um, numerous albums featuring Billy Harper. Um, specifically, the album I'm talking about is uh, Billy Harper Quintet, and it's the album In Europe. Um, and the track is the opening track called Priestess. kind of grand feeling to the whole thing. I mean, it's a 30 minute long track, which is the main motif. It's this really kind of big, feels very kind of hopeful, mm. uh, kind of very lyrical, but it's got a real, a real kind of emotive weight to it. And this is what I was saying about his lyrical playing. Yeah. You know, and I feel you hear the same thing in Joe Bonner's playing as well. It's these very lyrical lines um, that really grab you. Like uh, the second movement of A Love Supreme, uh, Resolution. It's got that same kind of earworm quality of the, the, the tenor line. It's very kind of memorable. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's what I just love about Harper's playing. Um, and again, you know, this whole track, it, it feels like, in a way, it's like a four-minute intro of like mm. setting up the main motif and then there's, you know, Harper takes solos and stuff before at the very end. A bit like the, uh, the previous track, Call of the Wild and Peaceful Heart. It's a similar kind of thing. It's yeah. a long, freewheeling track which takes its time to kind of build and... Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic, fantastic album. Again, um, one to track down. If you've never heard of Billy Harper, I recommend everything he's done. Fantastic musician. Um, and I think underrated. In my Which finally um, brings me to the last step on the musical journey. Um, I'll let you guess, what's the connection between this and your track, Saturday Night at the Cosmos? They're both in soul note? Correct. Yes. Um, George Adams and Don Pullen Quartet uh, Saturday Night at the Cosmos um, from their album Live at the Village Vanguard Volume 2 uh, released on Soul Note in 1986.
trilogy of songs that you hear on this record, uh, which is the set in full as it was played. So three of the tracks, Saturday in the Cosmos, The Great Escape and Big Alice, a part of a story right. that Tom Pollan has composed musically about Big Alice, who's the imaginary leader and sole member of the Don Pollan fan club. Because Pollan in the line notes says that when he looked out from his piano, he imagined seeing this woman there. Um, Big Alice. Big Alice. Um, she was hanging out on a Saturday night at a club called The Cosmos uh, with her boyfriend, hence Saturday Night in The Cosmos. Right. Sees him talking to another woman and chases him, which is the track The Great Escape. That's bizarre. It's mad, isn't it? I think the punchline is that Big Alice takes up running at the end because her boyfriend got away. So oh, and she couldn't catch him because she's too fat. Yeah. So. <laughs> I love Don Pollen's playing because he does these incredible glissendi and sweeps and runs mm. without it ever sounding misplaced. It's still in key, even though he's running his hands all over the keys. Yeah. And, it get, and it builds and builds. He's like Cecil Taylor, but actually playing the right notes. He's like Cecil Taylor meets McCoy Tyner, basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Cecil Taylor, you look at him, it looks like he's just sometimes just playing all the, just anything and everything yeah. kind of thing. Whereas at least Don Pullen, you see him kind of, everything's very kind of nimble and yeah. precise. And it, it still fits within this very jaunty. It's, it reminds me a bit of Birdland, the uh, yeah. weather report tune, which is also yeah. about a jazz club, interestingly. Birdland. Where you'll find birds like Big Alice. Well, birds we will come on to. Oh. Uh, yeah. oh, yeah, you've got a fear of birds, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I learned this this morning. Uh, Dan has an irrational fear of birds, specifically chickens. It's going to make this very difficult episode because there's a lot of bird talk coming up. Yeah. Um, is that why you don't like Charlie Parker? Is that, yeah. <laughs> and Donald Bird as well. You've never been a fan of either of those guys. I love all these people. No. <laughs> it's, it's very confusing for me. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to say was that uh, they loved the sound in the vanguard so much that when they were in another club, any other club where the sound wasn't up to scratch, Danny Richmond would apparently say, this doesn't sound like the vanguard. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's a testament to obviously how good it sounds. So many great sets have been recorded there. Yeah. Notably the ones that can come to mind are the, um, obviously the Bill Evans. Yeah. And uh, Sonny Rollins as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm sure there's lots more as yeah. well. I just can't think of off the top of my it's head. The, oh, Coltrane as well. Yeah. Coltrane Live at the Village Vanguard. Yeah, it was the big club in New York. Yeah. And this is, yeah, Don Pollen, George Adams on tenor sax and flute, mm -hmm. who shares your birthday. And hey. Duke Ellington's birthday. Good day, yeah. Jazz Birthdays. Yeah, Jazz Birthdays are great. Cameron Brown on bass and Danny Richmond, as I mentioned, on drums. Mm. He's my link. Danny Richmond. Yeah. Okay, what two? Reincarnation of a Lovebird by Charles Mingus from his 1957 Atlantic classic album, The Clown. reincarnation of a lovebird oh okay right and he said he felt like crying when he wrote it right 
Yeah. It's got that kind of jaunty, um, late 50s feel to the su early sunrise stuff as well. Definitely. Um, yeah, it's that, that jauntiness you hear with Mingus. It's a weird album because it ends with a 12-minute track called The Clown, which is narrated by Gene Shepherd, right. and it's a story about a clown. And yeah, I don't know why I'm drawn to these. <laughs> these strange concept albums. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> but yeah, and it starts with a Haitian fight song. Oh, that's a great tune. A real yeah, yeah. stomper. Yeah, yeah. A uh, fantastic album. Shafi Hadi on the saxophones and Wade Leg on the piano. Uh, Mingus bass, of course. Uh, Generation of drums. And Jimmy Nepper on trombone, who is my nick. To my next pick, which is Where Flamingos Fly by the Gil Evans Orchestra. Oh, okay. On Impulse, 1961. The album is called Out of the Cool. I need to get this album like it's kind of criminal I don't have it and it's interesting that we were talking about the first albums released on Black Saint and on Three Blind Mice because Out of the Cool was one of the original Impulse albums one of the first four oh, that they put out at the start of the label interesting it's one of the first <laughs> ones that we talked about on the blog uh, I wrote about Nevada, which is the 15 minute opener with Elvin Jones on Shakers yes he's here on percussion uh, Jimmy Nepper with that lead trombone line. I mean, that's, I think it's probably some of the most forlorn and almost kind of like soulful and sad trombone playing I've yeah. ever heard. I don't know, just the lines are very, very soulful. Yeah. Um, not something I associate really with the trombone. Mm. Well, this is the genius of Gil Evans as an arranger. It's his ability to use instruments that aren't normally associated with jazz in a kind of relatively small orchestral setting. Is why Miles Davis said he was the new Ellington. Yeah. He's so textural and all these colours and... It's got emotions. that cinematic feel. Yeah. You know, it's definitely got this feeling of... It feels like you're watching a film. Yeah. Listening to it, even just a track like that. It's five minutes long, but it feels like you've watched the kind of... The ending of a film. Or yeah. some sort of sad scene. But yeah, amazing track. And also on the theme of birds. Yes. Well, this may be a thing. Because my next track is Buzzard Song by Miles Davis from his album Porgy and Bess, released on Columbia in 1959. <laughs>
getting memories of when we went and saw um, that live performance of Paul getting best. Yeah, we saw um, a concert of Miles and Gil Evans' music. Obviously, this is also arranged by Gil Evans. You can hear that sonic blueprint that Gil Evans has at this point. The link being um, Gil Evans and members of his orchestra who were on um, out of the call, such as Johnny Coles, who we talked about in a previous episode on the trumpet. Yeah. Um, and then you've also got members of the Miles Davis band at the time, Paul Chambers, Philly Joe Jones, Cannonball Adderley's on there, Jerome Richardson is on flute, Ernie Royal on the trumpet, and it's just... It's a fantastic piece of music, isn't it? Yeah, the Gershwins, Porgy and Bess, one of my favourite Miles Davis albums. I love the opera, but there's something about the arrangements, the way he modernises it, brings in the Western classical instruments, and Miles Davis just has that unerring sense of swing. Mm. It's so... It's very cool, like the whole... The whole soundtrack, it's kind of got that emotional, yeah. um, cinematic feeling of, of Gil Evans' arrangement combined with that just, yeah. the, the unfaltering, cool swagger of yeah. Miles. And it's kind of, the, the two of them are a match made in heaven. Definitely. Like, they were complete musical. Counterparts, brothers in arms. Yeah. Well, it's like we were, we were saying in the last episode about, you know, you get these musical pairings, um, be it, MF Doom and Madlib, be it Diller and someone like Common, yeah. you know, or Miles, and the, you you have these people that have that real connection, yeah. physical connection, and understand one another. And I feel that Miles Davis and Gil Evans were that, and they were best friends throughout Miles Davis's life. Yeah, um, and yeah, the way they were able to bring out the emotion of the opera without the vocals or the story mm. is really impressive. Yeah, that is interesting. Right. So you've gone from lovebirds to flamingos to buzzards. Where are you going now? Tell me it's not another bird pick. Don't squawk. <laughs> it actually is. <laughs> it's fantastic. Just when I thought, just when I thought, oh no, there's only so many times you can kind of create, you know, interesting musical connections be it by artists and you've come with the whole bird-themed playlist. And the uh, musicians are all interconnected as well, in this case. Oh, I thought you were going to say all the, all the musicians are named after birds. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Ernie Royal and Jerome Richardson feature on another one, which is an album, not by um, DJ Khaled, but by Oscar Pettiford, <laughs> as it's Pettiford. released on Bethlehem. Ah, uh, yes, Bethlehem. In 1955. The holiest of jazz labels. Oscar Pettiford, another one! <laughs> that would be so funny, that's what it's <laughs> Lee Konitz and Warren Marsh on their Atlantic release. As featured last episode on they 11th Cross Current. Lee Konitz and Warren Marsh is a fantastic record. It's not one we're talking about now, mm. but it's one of the most laid back uh, jazz albums that I've heard, especially that version of Don't Squawk. 
and Oscar Pettiford is on that album as well. But another one also known as Oscar Pettiford Volume 2. Oscar Pettiford, the bass player, leads an octet and composed this song. Again, it sort of incorporates a slightly Ellingtonian, uh, even though he was a bebop pioneer, mm. he was really good at orchestration and mm. texture as well. Apparently he discovered Cannibal Adderley. Doing what? Um, Playing a saxophone or just doing he, something else at the shops? Or? He, he says that, Wikipedia says that somebody, <laughs> someone <laughs> tricked Pesford into letting Adderley, who was unknown at the time, uh, onto the stand. Oh. Uh, and had Adley solo on a demanding piece on which Adley performed impressively. And that was game over after that. Yeah. Adley got up and she went, and they were like, yeah, this guy. As I said, only Royal and Jerome Richardson, uh, who were on uh, the Porgy and Bess album, are in that group with Gigi Grice on the saxophone, Bob Brookmeyer plays trombone, Don Avenue piano, O.C. Johnson drums, and Donald Bird is on trumpet. He must be quite young at the time, because this is 1955. He must be very young. Must be fresh out of the womb. Well, yeah, what do you want? fresh out of the egg. <laughs> he was 23, and he is the composer of my next pick, which is Fly Little Bird Fly, <laughs> uh, from the Duke Pearson record, Wahoo! Exclamation mark. On Blue Note Duke Pearson's soulful, funky, sophisticated, but also upbeat arrangements. Definitely. I mean, he, obviously, being a great musician himself, he also arranged a huge amount of Blue Note records, mm -hmm. you know, and had a hand on so many classics. Yeah, we talked about um, A New Perspective by Donald Byrd back in episode one. Yeah. And yeah, there's Bird here on trumpet, composed the song, loves to put birds in the names of his songs, as a lot of jazz musicians like to pun on their own names. Yeah. Mickey Roker on drums, Bob Pranshaw bass, James Spaulding, who we've also mentioned before, on the saxophone and flute, and Joe Henderson on tenor. There we go. Pretty good lineup, that. It's a really good lineup. <laughs> I mean, it's the Blue Note stable. You can't go wrong. Or is it Avery? And that brings me to the final piece of the Birdie Jigsaw. I mean, it's not a bird track, it's Jump Blues by Joe Henderson. We've gone from Soul Note to Atlantic to Impulse to Columbia to Bethlehem. Wow. To uh, Blue Note to Milestone. Wow, that's, that is impressive. All via a link of birds. And uh, musician links as well. Yeah, that's actually very impressive. I mean, I thought, I kind of liked my, I thought, oh, okay, you know, I've got some change it up a bit, we'll do some like debut album stuff, we'll go into some Japanese jazz and stuff like that, but I think you've kind of taken the, uh, <laughs> I think you win for, well, okay. for best, for best kind of most elaborate route. But yours was right. 70s, 80s, heavy Japanese and Italian stuff, and I went 50s. 
So really what you're saying is that within this episode, we've covered the whole history of jazz yeah. and all the relevant players, which is why you should tune in to the next episode of um, Roots of Jazz Impressions <laughs> podcast, because every week we... We'll be scraping the barrel next week <laughs> with DJ Khaled. Yeah, on a theme on a theme of other animal names, yeah, on a dog-related jazz. <laughs> Snake-related jazz songs. Yeah. Such as um, The Sidewinder by Lee Morgan. There's one by um, James Spaulding, which is called The Smile of the Snake. Or we could do also Yusuf Latif's Prayer to the East with the giant cobra on the front. Yeah. Snake-related. Uh, Cannibal Adderley. Oh, uh, uh, this guy. Um, um, Nat Adderley. You just keep saying Adderley. Ron Garter Snake. Oh, the fantastic uh, vocalist, Anna Conda. Leonard Featherboa. Hey. <laughs> You need to wrap up. So I hope you all enjoyed uh, another rambling episode of um, Roots, the Jazz Impressions podcast. And uh, join us again soon for another uh, another episode. Um, be sure to like and subscribe on Twitter, Instagram. And uh, yeah, finally, before we go, why did the jazz musician cross the road? I don't know. Why did the jazz musician cross the road? To get to the other side, man. Mm.